The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. So we are here today uh, to take the funds from that veto, uh, introduce legislation to return that money to the taxpayer. Basically, we're giving the governor a second chance to do the right thing. Republicans float another tax plan, and a visit to Wisconsin from the First Lady focuses on health care, as costs for 10 Medicare drugs could soon deflate. I'm Frederica Freiberg, tonight on Here and Now. Analysis of the new GOP tax proposal, insights into the dysfunction on the state's high court, the latest attempts to remove the elections administrator, and what kind of relief Medicare recipients can expect to see on drug prices. It's Here and Now for September 1. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Dueling tax and spend priorities out of the Capitol this week, Republican lawmakers want to use nearly three-quarters of the state's projected $4 billion surplus to lower taxes in the third income bracket. The proposal would reduce the tax from 5.3 percent to 4.4 percent for joint filers earning between $18,420 and $405,550 per year. The plan would also exclude the first $150,000 of a couple's retirement income from taxes. While the state assembly moved quickly to a public hearing on the plan, Senate leadership says only that the proposal is under discussion. But Senate co-sponsor of the tax cut, Republican Rachel Cabral-Guevara, said her constituents are telling her they're struggling to make ends meet due to high prices for things like school supplies and other everyday purchases. All of these little costs are adding up, adding up, adding up, and we're sitting on all this money that these individuals have earned and paid in. It needs to go back. Governor Tony Evers says he would like to consider the plan, but his office has concerns it would jeopardize more than $2 billion in federal relief funds, which states are prohibited from using to offset tax reductions. He also wants Republicans to consider funding his priorities, like child care and the university system. Here to unpack this proposal, Jason Stein from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. And Jason, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the retirement income exclusion up to $150,000 is new. Uh, what is your reaction to that proposal in this package? I mean, it's obviously something that could be a popular proposal. It's a group that has many vulnerable people in it, also has many voters in it, and that's something that's always in mind for politicians. You know, at the same time, we are an aging state. So that means this is a very large ticket item. And also, we're a state that is trying to recruit younger workers. And so to the extent we put in a big tax break for people at the upper end of the, of the age scale, that's going to bring tension with trying to recruit workers at the younger end. So is it something you think piques the governor's interest? You know, it is something that would affect people across the income span or people at lower and middle incomes. So that may make it somewhat more attractive to him. You know, at the same time, I think the size of the package is probably beyond what he would like to see, given that he has other priorities for the surplus. So as, as to the governor, his office says that this income tax reduction puts in jeopardy more than $2 billion of federal relief funds because they're prohibited uh, being used this way as tax reduction. Uh, offsets. Is that still true to your knowledge? 
You know, I think there's a, a legitimate concern there to the level that the state should look at that carefully and, and potentially consult with the U.S. Treasury about that. At the same time, we do have a surplus. We had a surplus going into this budget of roughly $7 billion. So I think the argument can be made that the state had funds in addition to the $2.5 billion that we received from the federal government in excess of that to make tax cuts. You know, at the end of the day, I think the main question here for the public and for elected officials is, what is the best and highest use of that money? And then we can worry about, you know, more minor technical issues like that. Well, speaking of the best use of that money, the governor, of course, thinks one of the best uses would be his child care, billion dollar child care package and uh, giving more money to the UW system. But the GOP came out with its own child care package, which doesn't kind of address with a lot of money. It's right. more like, you know, uh, lowering regulations, yeah, things yeah, like that. Yeah, that kind of thing. So that's kind of a standoff here. Sure. What do you think? How might that resolve? Again, I think there are all the elements here for the two sides to reach some sort of a deal. I mean, they have, quite frankly, been more adept at doing that than I think some of us thought that they would be. And so both in terms of dialing down the, the tax cut, maybe dialing down what the governor wants from um, the child care funding, and then perhaps doing something on the regulation side for child care. There might be some package here you could see that could bring the sides together and maybe leave the state with a healthy balance to, you know, weather any unforeseen challenges that come up. I think it's really a matter of political will here. I, I don't see any reason why. There's no ideological bound that can't be bridged. <laughs> That's what we say today. Uh, but in terms of the income tax reduction itself, uh, the Senate co-sponsor says it would save the average Wisconsin taxpayer over $750 a year. What about those at the top of that bracket? Um, again, this is going to be a package that's going to be pretty favorable to people at the upper end because, again, it's going to have its biggest effect for people that have the most income that's subject to it. Obviously, you can have income for married couples up a, just above $400,000. You know, that being said, this is a package that is still providing something for lower and middle income taxpayers, particularly if they're retired. So this is movement, I would say, on the side of Republicans towards where Governor Evers had wanted, just maybe not as much as he would like to see. Is it your sense that the Senate leadership is not moving as quickly uh, on this because they'd like to see even more tax cuts? I mean, that's potentially true, and I think the Assembly has always been a more top-down driven House, and that makes it a little bit easier for the leadership there to propose things. It's always been the practice of Senate leaders to kind of sit back and wait and see if everyone can get on the same page and then they just move to the head of the parade and start leading it, but we'll, we'll see. What kind of position does this put Governor Evers in? Because everybody likes a tax cut. A absolutely, and, and this is pro potentially very, you know, attractive to a big voting bloc. At the same time, you know, he's had some movement in his direction. So I think there's a potentially an opening for him to come to the other side and say, well, you know, this isn't what I want, but here's something that would be closer and to see if the two sides. They also have Miller Park or the American Family Field, the Brewers Stadium, where they're going to need to come up with a deal. And that potentially is going to cost money as well. So I think he's got to think about the big picture about what he needs to do over the next year and then try and come up with a compromise that fits. 
All right, well, we will be watching all of that. Jason Stein, thanks very much. Thank you. Turning to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, acrimony amongst justices has hit a fevered pitch in recent weeks. With the liberal wing newly in the majority, conservatives are expressing the sting of being in the 4-3 to three minority. There are actions causing the infighting, like the liberal justices firing and replacing a court director. But the essential outrage for conservatives has to do with the fact that new liberal justice Janet Protosewitz was elected during a campaign where she said the current Republican legislative voting maps were rigged and unfair. Republicans want Protosewitz to recuse from hearing a lawsuit over the maps and, if she doesn't, threaten to impeach her. A liberal law firm said in a court filing over the matter, quote, unhappy with this electoral result which they could not prevent through gerrymandering, Republicans now seek to nullify the results and pick their justices. Now, this is just the latest Supreme Court dust-up in Wisconsin, a high court historically known as nonpartisan and collegial. When did it become a proxy for politics as usual? We turn to here and now senior political reporter Zach Schultz. Hi, Zach. Hello, Fred. So the idea of impeaching a Supreme Court justice seems far-fetched, but given the Republican majority, maybe not. Uh, where is this right now? Well, right now, it's still in the land of threats and allegations and questions about how far this will go, but it could get serious very fast. The Assembly Republicans can certainly be happy to present this. They could likely get this passed through their chamber. Whether it would actually go all the way through the Senate and have all 22 Republicans in the Senate vote to impeach seems questionable, more questionable than whether the Assembly can do it. But then there's questions of what happens in, in the meantime. And even if there is impeachment charges brought forward, is that enough? to throw enough chaos or slow down a process to mean that perhaps these redistricting maps that are being talked about, if the court takes the case, may not be in effect until after 2024, which is ultimately what Republicans would like to see happen, delay any changes to the maps that give them their power. Indeed. So we, we think of this as a major and possibly an unseemly kind of uh, fight with major I implications, but it's not the first trouble the court has uh, spilled into the public eye. Oh, absolutely not. This court has had a troubled history, I think it's fair to say, for at least the last 15 to 16 years. Uh, we had one justice accused of choking another justice uh, in, in, inside the Capitol, and that went all the way back up to the court of whether he should be, you know, lose his seat in that case. So th there have been all sorts of dust-ups and allegations. I think the difference here is the speed at which, which some of these allegations are coming out. Over the past few years, most of this kind of snide remarks and snipping at each other other has been done in the footnotes of decisions. The major decision will come out, and then a justice in their commentary will take a pot shot or two at someone else that they think should have agreed with them or saying how they don't actually understand the law or the Constitution. Now this is happening at the speed of email, and that's in part because the speed of the changes is so much faster. Conservatives on the court and Republican supporters out in the public want this information out faster. They're releasing it faster. And instead of happening in the background and then coming out slowly over the course of time, we're getting it almost as it happens. I said historically the court was known to at least project nonpartisanship and collegiality. When did that change? 
Well, I think a lot of election observers will look back to 2007, and that's when there was an open seat on the court, and it was Linda Clifford as a liberal and Annette Ziegler, the current chief justice, running as a conservative for that seat. That was coming off a period of time where some of the court's decisions really made a major political impact. One of those was the lead paint decision that allowed a lot of manufacturers of paint to be sued. They did not like that, and in that race, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, the conservative business lobby, dumped a ton of money into that race, and that was the first time we saw real heavy hitter outside political groups put a political slant that heavy onto a race and really impact the final margin. And then it just went from there. The next year we saw uh, Justice, well, became Justice Gableman. Mike Gableman run one of the most racist ads in history in defeating Justice Lewis Butler. And then since then, these races have become more proxies for the parties. Before that, you saw candidates almost keep the parties at arm's length, saying that we, we don't want your help. We don't want to be endorsed by you. Uh, Justice Prosser at one point told me he wasn't a judicial, he wasn't a conservative Republican anymore. He was a conservative judicial philosopher. And that was after he was the assembly Republican speaker. So people really tried to keep their distance from the parties. But over the last decade, if you want to win, you need the party apparatus to fund those ads and to use the get out the, the vote operations door to door. And that's become more and more clear in every election since then. As to Justice Protozawitz, uh, the other major issue she campaigned on, of course, was abortion rights. Uh, couldn't the current recusal impeachment battle just repeat if she is not sidelined first? You could see that. I think one difference between the issue of redistricting and abortion is redistricting actually threatens the power of the, the Republicans to keep their majority. If maps change, they will lose seats. Everyone knows this. They will lose seats in the Senate. They will lose seats in the Assembly. Whether they lose their majorities isn't clear. It depends on the maps. But they will lose seats. They will lose power. If the abortion situation changed, there are some conservatives who will make an argument that say that's actually better for them, taking that issue perhaps off the table. We've seen what the issue of abortion has done to energize independent women, young voters, and even some moderate Republicans over the last couple of years. There are a lot of Republicans in this building that will publicly say they don't want to see any abortion at all in Wisconsin, but privately they would be very happy to see that be a non-factor. And if the Supreme Court did that for them, they wouldn't feel bad as long as they get to keep their majorities. So in Wisconsin Supreme Court, justices themselves now get to decide whether to recuse. How does that factor here? Well, it factors in that we don't know if there is an impeachment process coming forward. We don't know where that will get stalled. More than likely, as like everything else in the Capitol, there will be a lawsuit filed at some point in the process saying this isn't, this isn't legal, you don't have the rights to do that, you don't have the grounds to do that, and there will be people trying to throw a wrench into that process before it could potentially take Justice Protosewitz off the bench. Well, if there's a court, case, then it will go up to the court. And eventually, it could be Protosewitz herself deciding whether or not to recuse her from, herself from a case that would reflect on her. And we've seen that in the past. I mean, the conservative now minority had options in the past to actually pass clear recusal rules, and they declined. They always wanted it to be left up to individuals. And frankly, they've sat on plenty of cases that have involved their campaign donors and their supporters and people that have brought them through. Everyone in this building is connected to politics. Everyone who sits on the bench is connected to politics in one way or the other. And while they sit in the chambers, they, they want to be nonpartisan. But that's not the reality of the politics that surrounds them and engulfs them, frankly, at all these major decisions. Zach Schultz, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank
Thanks, Fred. Speaking of the Wisconsin courts, the question of whether the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission will keep her job will likely be decided in the courts. Republicans in the legislature want to see Megan Wolf removed from her position, and they held a public hearing this week on her renomination to run the Elections Commission, except she hasn't technically been renominated, and Democrats called the hearing a sham. The room was full of election conspiracy theorists like Mike Gableman, who was called an embarrassment to the state by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss after Gableman's election investigation cost the taxpayers millions of dollars and produced no evidence of fraud or wrongdoing. As to Wolf and the Elections Commission, Earlier this summer, the six members of WEC held a vote to renominate Wolf for the job. The three Republicans voted yes, hoping to send her name to the Republican Senate, where the GOP said they would vote her down, effectively firing her. But the three Democrats on the commission abstained from voting, and since state law requires four votes for a nomination, Wolf is able to continue to stay on, even as her term has expired. Democratic Attorney General Josh Call advised Wolf not to attend the hearing, citing a case called Lost in the Supreme Court in 2022, in which the high court ruled Fred Prane could stay on the Natural Resources Board past his term. The Republican Senate passed a resolution saying they considered Wolf renominated and called the hearing. Democrats say the fix is to change the law, making it clear appointed officials have to step down when their term expires. I guess I would just say in terms of the legislature uh, giving away its authority, we're, we're the ones that empowered the six-member bipartisan commission uh, with the ability to have the, the first say in the process of appointing an administrator, and uh, th they've taken a vote and they have not made a nomination. So uh, if we don't like that, we're welcome to change statute, but that's the statute that this legislature created. Just unfortunate that we are going to wind up back in court for trying to exercise our own authority, and it was never intended this to play out this way. Um, and if, if it was by some, we knew this was going to happen, then we purposely wrote really bad legislation, which I don't think was anyone's intention. Ten life-saving prescription drugs could soon cost less for anyone enrolled in Medicare Part D. That's roughly 1.1 million Wisconsinites. The first ten drugs announced treat blood clots, diabetes and heart failure, chronic kidney disease, blood cancers, and more. Additional drugs to be negotiated are expected. The action stems from part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which will allow the federal government to negotiate prices with manufacturers for the first time. Medicare currently spends $135 billion on prescription drugs annually. The savings will allow it to shore up finances, according to the AARP, and eventually lead to lower Part D premiums. For more, we're joined by AARP Wisconsin Director of Advocacy, Martin Hernandez. And thanks very much for being here. No, thank you for having me. So how meaningful is it that the federal government, for the first time, will be able to negotiate these drug prices? We know that. You know, Americans have um, some of, if not the highest drug prices in, in the world. And so being able to negotiate for these first 10 drugs is, is a historic first step in uh, relief for all Americans, but especially older Americans who we already know um, are on a fixed income in many cases, 
um, and a lot of times they're the ones who are taking the majority of these prescription drugs. How much could this help lower out-of-pocket costs for these seniors? So we're looking at a potential reduction of, uh, you know, in, in the millions of dollars overall when we look at the total uh, savings, not just for these 10 drugs, but then additional ones that will get added on to this plan in the future. Because these drugs are the kinds of drugs that many, many um, seniors take mm -hmm. for things, as we described, okay. um, like blood clots and, and heart disease and that kind of thing. So they're, they're, they chose these drugs uh, in particular? They reached out. Um, there was a lot of public hearing sessions done to, in order to determine which are the 10 drugs that were going to be included on this first batch. Um, and that will continue happening um, as they add more and more drugs. Um, there will be 15 more added in 2027, hopefully, um, with another 20 added to the negotiation by 2029, getting us up to a potential 60 drugs covered by this negotiation process. Because the White House fact sheet on this said that for enrollees without additional financial assistance, average annual out-of-pocket costs for these drugs were as high as nearly $6,500 per enrollee last year. What happens to people who simply cannot afford that? Well, the unfortunate circumstance that happens is many seniors either will go without their prescription or they will ration it out, where they might take half of a pill when they should be taking a full uh, dose for that day. Um, and obviously we know that that has many detrimental effects to their health. It seems counterintuitive that seniors, many of them on fixed incomes, have to pay that kind of money for prescription drugs. Um, what has been the reaction from your members to this? They, I think this is, was an exciting first step. Um, many of them know uh, exactly how much of an effect this will have on their pocketbook, uh, and they're excited to continue the fight. Um, to bring more, more and more drugs into the price negotiated scale. So the negotiated prices don't just help consumers on prescriptions. Uh, it represents savings for the Medicare program itself. Um, could that lead to lower premiums? That's the hope, is that as we bring the cost of Medicare down, um, that it, oh, it uh, leads to lower costs overall in all sectors of the healthcare field. Given that um, the number of uh, the demographics are such that the, the older population is growing mm -hmm. um, and there's always discussion about Medicare and Social Security, if the negotiated drug prices kind of shore up Medicare, um, would you imagine that they would actually lower the premiums or would they just kind of use it to maintain the, the Medicare program itself? I, I think that's going to be the, the next big conversation we have, and that's, that's the work that we're doing is getting folks uh, active in their political process so that when that decision comes, we, we can have an active voice uh, at the table. You know, it, it has always struck me that um, a lot of people think that seniors on fixed incomes, they don't have to pay for Medicare, no. and they don't have to pay uh, for their prescription drugs, but actually those premiums are quite high given many seniors' incomes. No, no, especially uh, one of the drugs that was uh, announced as part of the program, Genuvia, which is used to treat diabetes. Um, the price for that prescription has gone up by 275% since it was introduced in 2006, and we actually have 11,000 Wisconsinites on Medicare who take that drug. So having that price come down, um, any amount is going to make a big impact for those 11,000 Wisconsin residents. Absolutely. And yet 
people should not expect this to go into effect uh, until 2026. 2026 is, is the goal for getting this implemented. Um, there are unfortunately uh, lawsuits by the drug manufacturers. Um, that our hope is that it doesn't delay the implementation. It's, it's been long coming, this, this relief for, for all Americans, especially older Americans. Um, and our hope is that come 2026, we can start rolling out the plan uh, and then adding additional drugs. So there, uh, there are lawsuits on the part of drug makers over um, these, you know, negotiating these prices. But couldn't the um, federal government say, well, fine, you don't want to do this, then you are not going to have, uh, you know, you, you can't be part of the Medicare program? That, that is one option that they have. Um, we're, we're hoping that they that it doesn't have to come to that much of a of a head off. Um, the drug manufacturers can still make a healthy profit. That is that is our stance. Is that um, even with these negotiated prices, they can still make a healthy prof profit, innovate on new drugs, um, while still providing again that lower cost for their consumers. It, it is true too that the the cost of insulin has been capped. Yes. What what is that like for your members? That that was a big first step is capping insulin. Right now it's capped at thirty five dollars a month for folks who are on Medicare Part D. Um, ARP is definitely supportive of expanding that to all Americans. Allow everyone to have access to that uh, $35 a month cap on insulin. Because what was it? What were people having to pay? They were paying uh, upwards of three, four times the amount uh, in order to access insulin. And obviously that is a life-saving drug. It's, it's a life-saving drug and one that you can't go without. I think for me that's the most important part is many of these prescriptions are the types that you go on and you have to stay on in order to maintain a healthy uh, lifestyle. And so it's not something that someone can take and again, either take less or, or ration out their prescription. Martin Hernandez, thanks very much. Thank you. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the news tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.